Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This is Shadi Karosh from the Department of Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. And today I have the privilege of hosting a virtual roundtable discussion by phone with the co-founders of the American Academy of Dermatology's Expert Resource Group on Climate Change and Environmental Consciousness. Dr. David Fivenson, who's in private practice and also Associate Residency Director and Program Director of the Complex Medical Dermatology Fellowship at St. Joseph Mercy Health System in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Dr. Misha Rosenbach, Vice Chair for Education and Program Director in the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us, Shadi. Likewise. Thank you. I'd like to open by acknowledging and thanking the Young Physician Committee for requesting and inspiring our discourse today. They approached me to host this discussion as a part of their career launch series, as environmental consciousness is such an important priority and thread in the discourse of our young physician members of the academy. They wanted to know how they can be socially conscious and mindful of the environment in starting their practice of medicine. So here we are, with you, who I understand are the co-founders of the AAD's expert resource group on climate change and environmental consciousness. Can you tell us a bit about the history of this group? What inspired the leadership of the academy to create it? And what are the goals? Yeah, Shadi, that's a great place to start. So first, actually, as the first part of that, I will say that David and I are two of the three co-founders. So um, the other co-founder is Mary Williams, who's on faculty at UCSF as a pediatric dermatologist. And she's really been integral in both launching this expert resource group and helping carry forward our missions. And I think first, it's a testament to the American Academy of Dermatology leadership that they have helped this group be formed and launch and that they recognize that there is a need for an expert resource group in this content area. And so just very briefly, the American Academy of Dermatology has a dozen or so expert resource groups in a variety of content areas to provide information to members and to the board to help guide them with decision-making and keep the field up to date with regards to topics where special expertise is necessary. And so there are expert resource groups and things ranging from care of the elderly and geriatric patients to inpatient dermatology to everything in between. And it's actually a great place for Academy members to get involved in contributing to knowledge about subtopics of our field. For us, the Climate Change and Environmental Work Group was founded about three years ago by David, Mary, and myself, and now has over 150 members. This has grown somewhat organically through word of mouth, and as interested people reach out with concerns or topics and end up being routed to us through queries that they raise to the academy or in response to publications that come out of some of us or our group or sessions at the meeting. And so about two years ago at the American Academy of Dermatology's annual national meeting, there was for the first time a session devoted to climate change and the impacts of climate change on skin disease. And over the past three to five years, there's been a growing body of literature about the impact of climate change on dermatology. So some of these are papers that you know, I've written and David's written and Mary's written, and these range from sort of review articles looking at the impact of climate change on skin disease to more editorial-based sort of a call to arms papers. But really at this point, there's publications about everything ranging from changing patterns of vector-borne habitats and infectious diseases to impacts of increased CO2 content on the transmissibility of urochiles from plant to cause contact dermatitis to more changing human behaviors and increased exposure of skin and duration of sunny and warm seasons and increased risk of skin cancer. 
but also things like pollutants triggering autoimmune diseases like lupus and pemphigus, and really a whole wide range of impacts between what's happening in the climate due to climate change and how that impacts skin diseases and dermatologists, both as healthcare providers, but also as people who live in this changing environment. I've noticed this thread that's been emerging in the literature of our own field on the impact of these environmental changes. And I was wondering if there are specific landmark papers among those you mentioned that you could point our listeners to, for example, papers in the JAD that have come out, or maybe some that are in the pipeline that we should be looking out for. Shadi, that's a great question. So like my first paper in this was actually in the JAD with Ben Kaffenberger, and it was a review on climate change and skin disease in North America. But more recently, there have been papers by Jonathan Silverberg looking at flares of pemphigus uh, as a result of air pollution. And there's papers in the pediatric literature by Marcus Bose and Sarah Coates, papers in JAMA Dermatology by Mary Williams. And there's the International Journal of Dermatology, which is put together by Louise K. Anderson and Mark P. Davis from Mayo Clinic have published really over a dozen articles looking at specific skin diseases ranging from atopic dermatitis to infectious diseases and everything in between that are impacted by the changing climate. But actually, the most exciting thing I'd like to talk about, and I'm going to hand it over to David in a second, is that the Women's Dermatology Society hosts an online journal, the International Journal of Women's Dermatology, and they've actually made the decision to dedicate an entire issue to the theme of climate change and skin diseases. And in full disclosure, I'm one of the guest editors for that, uh, again, with Mary, and, and David's been integral in putting that together. And one of the reasons that it's hard to point to a single paper is that climate change impacts every aspect of our environment, every aspect really of our lives, and it's going to lead to a lot of changes. And actually what we're seeing with COVID is kind of little, maybe a sneak preview of some of the different myriad of ways that climate change might impact the near and medium and long-term future. But one of the other areas that people might not think about is some of the chemicals we put on our body. And a lot of dermatologists have heard about sunscreens and impact of sunscreen on the environment. And so I just want to tag over to David, who's done a lot of work with this area. Well, thanks, Misha. So in my components of this journal that's eventually going to come out dedicated to climate change is I've been working on three different articles, one reviewing some of the key features that are very germane to this conversation, what someone needs to do to make their medical practice more sustainable or so-called a green office environment and helping to decrease the carbon footprint of the medical practice. And then we've also been working on a number of collaborators, two different articles related to sunscreens. One that focuses mainly on the use and regulations, particularly some of the newer FDA regulations and guidelines as well as some of the bans that have occurred in various uh, communities around the world. The other paper is a deep dive into and a kind of an exhaustive review of all of the, the literature that we could find to support the toxicities of various ultraviolet light filters. You know, these are what are go into making sunscreens but are not necessarily sunscreens themselves. Looking at microbial, algae, coral, higher order life forms and as well as human toxicity with data so far to kind of make a reference point for people to look at to see where we're going with the data rather than simply saying, oh, this is all irrelevant because it's all in vitro, which is oh, versus, oh, this is all terrible. We have to stop using sunscreens immediately because um, we need our sunscreens for sun protection, for skin cancer protection, but we also need to be conscientious of what they may potentially do to ourselves as well as the environment. So those are the kind of the three articles I'm working on. The rest of the dedicated journal kind of hits almost every other facet of some of the 
components of an environmental resource group and what we focused on as far as the, the key parts of the dermatology community that are affected by climate change issues. And so we have people talking about pediatric dermatology, we have people talk, uh, writing articles about environmental contaminations and disasters that may result in dermatologic manifestations. There's articles about something as specific as personal care products, like in taking care of babies and what would be best to use for in diapers and diaper creams and things like that. So it's, it's going to be fairly broad-based, but all focusing on various aspects of how what we do in dermatology is either impacted by climate change or how our specialty could be better reacting to it. These are definitely some hot topics in our field, and I'll be excited to see this issue of the International Journal of Women's Dermatology. When I was in my public health training, I remember being taught that sometimes it takes a generation before we actually know the impact of certain ingredients or how certain decisions will impact the environment. So I'm glad that you're actually clarifying the literature on these issues that have been some source of confusion. We've seen a lot of articles in the lay press about sunscreens, for example, whether they are good or bad for overall health, which ingredients are recommended and which are not, and then this whole issue of whether they're actually impacting the environment in a negative way. So I'm glad to hear that you all are tackling this issue in an academic way. Do you have any highlights or pearls that you could give to our listeners in terms of sorting out the guidelines of sunscreens and the environment? Actually, I want to just jump in real fast because this is a chance to plug actually. I mean, you know, our, our group has been trying to tackle this from a crossover of, you know, sunscreens and environment. But again, as a testament to the AAD, actually the board had reached out to our group to provide guidance on some issues relating to this when they were approached by both the FDA and the lay press about some of these stories. And I have to say the Academy, I think, has done a very good job of walking a balance between environmental impacts and patient care. And we should specifically call out Henry Lim, who's really been like the field's leader in tackling this and developing data and messages. And Kanade Shinkai, who published an editorial in JAMA itself after some of these articles had come out that could have risked prompting sort of widespread patient fear and hesitation to use these products. But really the bottom line that we emphasize is, you know, uh, as dermatologists, our job is to take care of patients with skin disease. And we know that sunscreens can be protective from UV damage and reduce ultraviolet damage, DNA damage, and then future skin cancers and photoaging. But we do have to balance the fact that there are some potential risks for some of these agents. And people have worried about both absorption and even endocrinologic effects versus, you know, focusing in this case on the environmental effects on coral reefs. And one of the messages that our group has pushed, which is true, is that the issues that corals are facing are due to man-made fossil fuel burning and CO2 emissions in the environment that then are absorbed in the ocean. And that raises the ocean temperature and lowers the ocean pH. That is the critical issue for corals. And that's really a critical issue for climate. And there's zero controversy about that. So when you mention the word controversy, sort of the controversy is not about the science, but the controversy is usually about like how we should react to it or what we should do. But one of the other messages our group has put out is that there are a lot of these chemicals that are used in sunscreens are used industrially to say protect lawn furniture from the effects of sun damage. And really the amounts of industrial use really outweigh the amounts of human use. And this is one of those issues where it can be viewed as a hot topic, like focusing on plastic straws and plastic straw bands. I'm sure plastic pollution is an issue, but plastic pollution from plastic straws is not a major issue compared to fossil fuels, CO2 rise, temperature rise, sea level rise, uh, increased storms, and all of the other issues. It, it's sort of like a, a helpful distraction. And, and I think focusing on the impact of people using sunscreens and whether that hurts corals is really more of a distraction than really focusing on anything that's going to be truly impactful. And then we, of course, have to balance that with we know that they help people's skin. 
Thank you. Some really important points. David, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, I think that that really is a good way to kind of look at it from the 100 mile up high view and that it really, the impact of sunscreens on the environment is, is such a small component. Um, there are some things that are legit that are of concern, but a lot of them are very small percentage compared to what the overall changes of global warming have provided as far as raising the ocean temperatures, as Misha illustrated. And the fact that they aren't just things that wash off of our body into the water when we go swimming and diving, they're coming through wastewater treatment plants, they're used in industry, they're extensively used in cosmetics, ultraviolet light filters to help prevent the ultraviolet light from making your nail polish turn funny colors. So I think that a lot of the the data that's in the review article we've been working on. And I probably should give a shout out to Scott Norton because he was really integral in getting this whole process going as well. He's one of the co-authors that these are small changes in the big picture of things. And probably the other key takeaway point is that the reason to push this is that in other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, they have a larger variety of options available for ultraviolet light filters, which have a better safety profile even in the in vitro setting compared to what our FDA has allowed use in the United States. And taking that, there's really no FDA approved sunscreens. There is a something called GRACE, which is generally regarded as safe and effective, G-R-A-S-E. However, those few things that are rated GRACE is just zinc oxide and titanium oxide. There's only one other sunscreen that's gone through FDA approval, which is Mexoril or Acamcel. All the other ones are not approved. They're allowed to be used. Some of them have been formally designated as not grace. That's why PABA is not involved in using any sunscreens anymore. So I'll leave it at that. I appreciate that it sounds like you all are approaching this in an interdisciplinary way, collaborating with experts in the field of photomedicine and the AAD leadership, such as Dr. Lim, to put it into perspective. Misha, from your earlier comments, it sounds like the AAD's initiatives are also in the context of a larger movement in the medical community towards these issues. And you also mentioned in light of the coronavirus pandemic, there might be certain parallels between this situation and the environmental issues. Can you give us a perspective on that? Scotty, yeah, thanks for that question. Before I dive into that, only because this might sound to listeners like it could be vaguely political, let me assure you it's not. So a lot of people might listen to this and say, boy, the AAD is doing some radical things with regards to climate. And the truth is we're not. We're either in step or behind other fields in medicine. So the AMA has very strong statements stating literally that it's physicians' responsibility to be aware of climate change and the impacts on health and associated health risk and the responsibility of physicians to be aware of climate change and the associated health risks and to speak and educate patients about that. And the American College of Physicians also has a similarly strong statement. And so the American Academy of Dermatology has a policy acknowledging climate change, but the AAD's policy is actually very reasonable, focused on raising awareness of the effects of climate change on skin disease and skin disorders, working with other medical societies, educating patients, and supporting and facilitating efforts of our members to decrease their carbon footprint. So that's all in the American Academy of Dermatology's position statement on climate change. And I know that the young physicians had asked about um, that last bullet point and sort of how to approach green practices. And and I know we're going to talk about that at the end. But I do want to point out that what we're talking about is not radical. This is sort of 
settled science, really. So the effects of fossil fuel burning leading directly to CO2 in the air, leading directly to global warming has reached five sigma level of certainty. So it's the highest level of certainty of any scientific knowledge. We have more evidence and data pointing to this as a fact than we do for other things that are accepted widely in science, such as gravity and evolution. And I will say that people view there being a controversy about this, and the, the truth is there's not. So you might hear that 97% of peer-reviewed publications support human-induced fossil fuel burning as the cause of climate change. The number in the last three years was 100%. And the only papers that do not find this are funded by fossil fuel special interests. And so it's important to know about the manufactured controversy is based on opinion pieces and editorials written by people with a vested interest in the fossil fuel industry. And part of that is because there are major movements afoot in many centers across the world and across the country to focus on the concept of divestment and removing investment from fossil fuel industries. And if you look at things recently, as COVID started, you may have seen oil shares plunge into the negatives. That is illustrative of uh, near-term threats and short, medium, and long-term concerns about the market for fossil fuels. And that sort of brought these things into line in one very striking moment early during the COVID pandemic. But I think the bigger issue and the bigger parallels are that there are attacks on expertise and lack of listening to science and evidence. And that has impacted the national response to COVID and the national response to global warming and climate change. And many climate scientists during the early part of the COVID pandemic were reaching out in solidarity to other scientific groups, such as epidemiologists, infectious disease experts, and virologists, saying the attacks against their expertise are mimicking and mirroring the attacks on the expertise of climate scientists that they have faced for the past decades. And this goes back to you know, arguments early on about the health risks of lead and people who raised concerns about lead pollution were attacked by vested interests. And similarly with physicians recognizing issues with tobacco and attacks on their expertise by vested interests. And that's something that we see uh, in climate change or, or climate scientists being attacked by vested interests who cast doubts on their science or cherry pick data to prove a point and put together graphs saying, oh, there's a pause in global warming. Well, you know, if you look at a four-year period, that's not illustrative of if you look at a 40,000-year period or 400-year period. And the same thing has happened really with COVID, where there are attacks on expertise and cherry-picking of data to help prove a point that may or may not be politically motivated. And a really nice example of this is that horrifically organized chart put out by the state of Georgia, where they tried to align the cases of COVID in a way that showed a continuous descent. And it's because on the x-axis, they did not line up the cases based on date. So if you look at this, it's, it's like famous now for graphic misinformation. But basically, they're trying to show cases of COVID over time to show that they're reduced, to show that it might be safe to reopen. But if you look at the x-axis, which is time, it is haphazardly arranged in a nonlinear fashion where it skips from days to days to show that the bar graph goes down. And it's been very frustrating to watch you know, an organization like the CDC, which should be really leading the way in the fight against this global pandemic, to basically be sidelined with politicization that, to basically be sidelined politically because of statements that are scientifically bound but may not fit the narrative of people in power. And that's something that the climate science movement has been dealing with for decades and that I'm sure many of your readers listening to this are getting a little bit stirred up at hearing me say this. 
I would encourage you to think about what motivations different groups may have in the data that they're putting out and the message that they're sharing. So if there were a scientist who could show that man-made global warming was not a fact, that would be a first author science nature or cell paper, and they would have infinite funding for the rest of their career, in addition to infinite amounts of financial support from all of the fossil fuel industry who would be delighted to have that finding. And the truth is, there is uh, biologic plausibility about fossil fuels leading to global warming. There is scientific evidence going back hundreds to thousands of years. And there is consensus in the scientific community that this is a fact. And at this point, there is really no argument. And it is very clear what we need to do to stop the worst effects of this. So for COVID, you see countries that have crushed the curve. There are zero cases in New Zealand. They have had no hospitalizations for five days as of the time of this recording versus the U.S. that has passed 100,000 deaths. And part of that is because of appropriately reacting early, listening to science. Well, it sounds like there are definitely a lot of considerations in terms of the macroscopic impact and in our daily lives in terms of actions we can take every day to make a difference. And I understand that David is one of our experts in the American Academy of Dermatology in doing just that. David, I hear you've taken several measures in your own practice to make it more environmentally conscious. Are there any tips that you could provide to our young physicians on how they can incorporate these principles into their practice? Oh, there's many, Shadi, but I'll, I'll, I'll hit on a few that we've used at my office. And then when the uh, papers come out that are going to be in the International Journal of Women's Dermatology dedicated issue, there will be at least two different manuscripts, one that I work on and, and another, highlighting many of these things that can be done very easily to make your office sustainable or a so-called green workspace. I got interested in this um, after connecting with Todd Sack, who started a program, a free program called My Green Doctor, which subsequently the American Academy of Dermatology has taken on as a, a free benefit for practices. Individuals can get an intro to this program, but otherwise there's a fee for joining My Green Doctor. But he provides, his system provides a very easy to follow workbook method for implementing a lot of these these things that you can do. And the way I look at it is there's sort of three general ways you can think about the environmental impact you want to make on your office to make it a sustainable place, as well as the financial impact you want to avoid or maximize, depending on how you look at it, because there, certainly some of these can be cost savings. So the simple things, easy things like turning off machines at night, hitting smart power strips, turning off lights, keeping track of one's electric bill, programming thermostats conservatively, and turning off hot water because we never really need much hot water in our clinic because by the time you finish washing your hands, the water's still cold anyway. Things that could cost a little bit that are very much within the reasonable budget are items like blackout blinds to decrease uh, heat loss through windows, solar hot water systems if one needs hot water, having an energy audit. But when you buy appliances or machinery, equipment for the office, make sure it's energy star rated. When you do upgrade, put LED lights in instead of incandescent or fluorescent. Printer ink. Everybody has printers and cartridges are ridiculously expensive for the small compacted printers, but those larger industrial heavy duty printers that larger departments have may in fact be more cost effective. I've 
bit the bullet myself on, on buying an enterprise system about four months ago, and I haven't had to buy any ink for four months. It's just, you know, I don't have a dollar amount that I've saved, but I know that at least um, we were going through about four cartridges at about $80 each per month. So you can do the math on that. And on the, the end of things where we're talking about more expenses and bigger expenses, that, that's where you start to think about how can I have the most uh, environmentally sustainable office from the date of construction of the date of beginning to look for that new lease. Lead certification and building is certainly attainable, but it adds to the cost of the build out. Full solar can be very helpful in decreasing the costs on the My Green Doctor site. Todd has postings of one of the communities in Florida that uh, the public health department switched to all solar and saved $14,000 on their electric bill the first year, which was about 6% savings per annual. It's interesting that the recommendations that you're making are actually cost saving. I think that a lot of people have the perception that being environmentally conscious would actually cost them more money. And hearing all these insights that you're providing are actually leaving me with the opposite conclusion, that a person would actually save money with a lot of these changes. That's exactly right. In my own practice, I tried to pick out the four or five things that we've done. I'm a single practitioner with a small practice base and very cost conscious. Probably I'm a little bit on the cheap side, as, as if you want to really know. But what we've done has certainly been things like turning off the, the power. We, when we built out the suite that we're in now, I paid the extra money to have all LED lights put in, in the suite. Our electric bills are under $300 a month for 2,500 square feet, which compared to my previous offices is a third. One of the things that I think in the way of recycling and helping with landfill uses in dermatology in particular is styrofoam. So many of our biologics come in, in huge styrofoam containers, and that's not readily street-side um, recyclable. I was able to find that our county has a, a drop-off site that I can go to once a month, and they provide these enormous plastic bags that I can get rid of all my styrofoam, and it's, and it's put into a guaranteed recycling spot. That takes me maybe 20 minutes once a month at, you know, to make an impact, I feel like. I think that the other issues, things that are very cost conscious that we've done is making sure we use uh, environmentally friendly cleaning supplies. These are mostly plant-based, still have the same effectiveness of being disinfectant. And one thing that I think my patients really like, and this is probably something else we really should include, is the impact it has on patients in the community of of Leading by example, we put up a little bulletin board of the things that we've done in our office, call it in our green board of, of accomplishments or key articles, and the patients really like it. We have some educational stuff about climate change and about healthy living on our website. Um, a lot of these are things that I've taken from the My Green Doctor website. There's also a number of other environmentally focused hospital and healthcare system sites that provide a lot of patient education as well. So I think that these are all things that are easy to do, can have an impact, and it actually becomes fun for the staff. And that's the final point is that this is something to engage your office, your staff, your patients. And again, I think it's leading by example is probably one of the things that we've always had emphasized to us all through medical school with regard to, to healthcare. 
So I think those are some great thoughts to leave our listeners with. My final question is about resources. Dave, you mentioned My Green Doctor as a resource. Are there other potential resources out there that our listeners can look to? For example, with these other organizations in medicine that are environmentally conscious, where can we go to learn more? Thank you for that. Yeah, there's a, a long list and I can, I'll, I'll rattle off several in, in rapid succession and we can provide potential uh, links to, to any of these later on. There's Practice My Green Health, American College of Physicians has excellent information on, on how to manage climate change within your practice. The Small Business Association, the EPA, AMA, all have, have sections dedicated to environmental advocacy as well as environmental responsibility within your practice. There's a group called the Medical Society Consortium for Climate and Health, which is a consortium of a number of different medical societies, both representing distinct specialties as well as subspecialties. The, the AAD joined this um, about a year and a half ago. They are advocacy and politically motivated in trying to push for green reforms, but coming at it purely from the medical. And they have come up with a mantra that I think is really something we need to take home. Um, short, discreet, easy to remember things are important. Climate solutions are health solutions. And this is probably something that at some point I'm going to emblazon on the side of my walls at my office because I think it says it all. As physicians, we need to be conscious of what we're doing to the environment because it comes back to bite us. Climate solutions are health solutions. I think that's a great teaching point, as well as the other points you made on how it can be both economically conscious and easy to do. I think that's an important message as well. Are there any final thoughts or pearls that you all would like to leave our listeners with today? Shadi, yeah, the only thing that I would like to say is first, thank you to the Young Physicians Group for selecting this as a topic they'd like to hear more about. And thank you, both you, Shadi, for interviewing us and Dialogues for hosting this. I think for listeners, the other thing is to make your voice heard. So, you know, if this is a concern of yours, you're not in the minority. And if you want to hear more or have more resources, you should reach out. So, you know, the Academy has a relationship with My Green Doctor, but I'm not sure how many listeners know that. And, you know, there is a session at the scientific meeting, but I'm not sure how many people are aware of it. And there are a lot of ways to get involved, a lot of ways to develop new resources, but also a lot of ways to push this to the forefront in terms of raising awareness that this is an issue that people care about. And so even, you know, sending a few emails uh, or writing some letters or showing up and asking for more information about this is, is a really good way to, to get involved or at least to hear from people about how to get involved. But I, I would echo what David said, you know, that medical consortium is a great starting point. And then, you know, reaching out to us directly if this is a, an interest of yours, and then we can sort of plug you in with our group and put you to work on helping develop some new solutions and moving the field forward to help combat these issues that we're all facing. Misha, you said it great. I'm not going to say anything more other than say thank you for the opportunity as well to be part of this interview. Well, thank you both. And thank you to our listeners for joining us and for your efforts to do right by your patients and our planet. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.